0: Hello and welcome to The Corridor here on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario and podcasting on Spotify and Apple Music. I'm Dinah Jansen. This news program features news from Kingston and area provided by local and regional journalists through the support of the Local Journalism Initiative and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome. Coming up at the top of our program today, we have Kingston area news from CFRC Local Journalism Initiative reporter Chris Laurie. Over to Chris.
1: Hello, I'm Christina Laurie, Local Journalism Initiative reporter for CFRC 11.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. Coming up are some of the top news stories in Kingston and the islands. You can listen to CFRC's news programs Today in YGK and Kingston Currents on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Or subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Music. If you have any Kingston news tips you'd like to share, you can reach me at news at cfrc.ca.
0: In this segment, Chris reports that there is an exhibit in Kingston showcasing Indigenous artists.
1: For the second year in a row, an art show featuring the work of Indigenous local artists has been set up in the Fireplace Reading Room in Stauffer Library at Queen's University campus. This installation is part of the events planned by the university leading up to the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation on September 30, 2023. There are currently approximately 25 artworks by 10 different local artists on display in the reading room on the second floor of the library. There are works in various mediums, including traditional paintings, jewelry, scriptures, and beadwork designs. Kaya Mongrain, the artist who created a painting entitled Never Gone, Always Remembered, featured in the exhibit, described the message of her work, stating, quote, I created the piece thinking about all the parents who never saw their children come home from the residential schools that even though many of their children have passed on, the relationship, that love, will never truly be gone, that those children will always be remembered, end quote. Students and community members can visit this display in Stauffer Library and participate in Queen's University's events for the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation until Monday, October 2nd. All classes and academic activities are suspended on October 2nd to observe the day. Queen's students are encouraged to display or wear orange on Monday, with orange shirts designed by Kingston-based indigenous artisan and designer Jalen Cardinal, available for purchase on campus, with a portion of the sales donated to the Orange Shirt Society. A Sacred Fire will also take place at Agnes Benedictson Field at 1 p.m. on October 2nd.
0: In her next segment, Chris Lowry reports that Limestone City Blues Fest wrapped after 26 years making way for new musical traditions in 2025.
1: Just following the 26th annual Limestone City Blues Festival at the end of August, the downtown Kingston Business Improvement Area announced this week that this year's festival was the last. In response to a dip in attendance over the last few years, many changes were made to breathe new life into the final festival. This was explained by Jim McDonald, Artistic Director of this year's festival, after wrapping.
2: We've been noticing, and not just as a result of COVID, But as a result of changing demographics, that our audience was getting a little bit smaller sort of year after year. And what we've noticed is that the average age of our audience is definitely, you know, blues fans tend to be 55 plus. Uh, So the number of people who were coming out to the festival was decreasing little by little each year. And then, of course, we had the impact of COVID. So people in, in that age bracket were less likely to come out to events where there were a lot of people. So we had some brainstorming sessions last fall with stakeholders, not only our staff, but our board members, some of our business owners and people in the music industry, just to chat about what we could do to make the festival new and
1: interesting to a younger demographic. While the festival successfully drew in a larger and more diverse audience, it was announced that this innovative edition was actually the last. This chapter coming to a close was also mentioned by McDonald as she anticipated the conversations the BIA would have just after the festival.
2: Uh, We are um, having serious planning sessions this fall to look at the future of not only the Blues Festival, but other festivals and events that we do. Um, You know, everything has its time and its place, and uh, I'm certainly not saying that the festival will go away. I really don't think it will but I think it will likely morph into a a little bit more of a music festival as opposed to a traditional blues festival.
1: While the Limestone City Blues Festival has come to a close, in the same announcement, it was also revealed that the BIA is currently planning for a new music festival set to launch in 2025. This festival will have a broader lens, including more genres than just blues, but it will maintain the same mission of providing a large-scale music festival in the heart of downtown Kingston.
0: Thank you, Christina. now over to Katrina Johnston with more in local news from Owen Fullerton of YGK News.
3: This is Kat bringing you some local news in the Kingston area. In this segment, we have a report from Owen Fullerton of YGK News for the Local Journalism Initiative. On September 26th, Fullerton reported that members of the Kingston Health Coalition and several hospital unions were part of a large protest at Queen's Park On September 25th, three full buses left Kingston on Monday morning to gather outside of Ontario legislature as it made its return from summer break. They joined approximately 80 buses from around Ontario that brought hospital staff to rally at Queen's Park. Erica Ben, president of OPSEU Local 4106, said that the resounding message was a continuation of that which was carried through rallies in the spring, that healthcare workers aren't happy with Ford government's privatization plan and have no plans of stopping their fight against it. "We're fighting to win this. We're not going to back down," Ben said. "We're in this to win public healthcare for Ontario." Ben added that both Merritt Stiles, leader of the Ontario NDP, and John Fraser, interim leader of the Liberals, spoke out against Bill 60 at the rally. Owen Fullerton went on to report that the Ontario Conservative government says it is implementing a three-step plan to divert some non-emergency surgeries to private clinics, with payments still being made through OHIP and expanding the range of surgeries outsourced over time. However, healthcare workers and the general public, according to Ontario Health Coalition's referendum earlier this year, worry that this will exasperate staffing shortages in hospitals and open the door to United States-style pay-for-care system. Ben says that the Ford Conservatives' choice not to invest billions of dollars budgeted for health care system are helping to create the problem that they say they are aiming to solve. The money that he's not giving to the public health care system is what's speaking volumes to what his plan is, Ben said. If you stop spending billions of dollars that you're supposed to be spending, of course the health care system is going to crumble. The Ontario government, however, insists that they are only trying to reduce surgery backlogs and expand options for Ontarians. Hannah Jensen, a spokesperson for Ontario's Minister of Health Sylvia Jones, said in a statement that the provincial government has continued to take steps in improving the breadth of care people in Ontario can receive. Jensen stated that our government is proud to have one of the largest publicly funded healthcare systems in the world, a system we've invested nearly 80 billion in this year. Since 2018, we've grown our healthcare workforce by over 63,000 nurses and 8,000 new physicians and built 3,500 hospital beds across the province, Jensen said. Listeners can read more about this and other stories by Local Journalism Initiative reporter Owen Fullerton at YGKnews.ca. This was Kat, and now over to Mia Lehtinen with more in local news.
4: In our next segment, Michelle Dory Forrestal, local journalism initiative reporter for The Kingstonist, reported that the overdose prevention site housed inside Collins Bay Penitentiary has presented a moral dilemma. She reported that planning and consultations are underway to implement an overdose prevention service at Collins Bay Institution, the third of its kind in Canada, according to the Correctional Service of Canada. As part of this initiative, the institution is currently undergoing renovations in order to provide these life-saving services. The renovations are taking place safely and quickly to implement OPS at the earliest opportunity and to offer services to those inmates that require it, according to the CSC. Forrestal further reported that Carrie Gayton of the CSC Media Relations said that the safety and security of our staff and offenders is a top priority. As part of its efforts, CSC worked closely with local police agencies and communities to prevent contraband, including illicit drugs and substances, from entering its institutions. Inmates found to be in possession of it or dealing with illicit drugs can face administrative consequences, disciplinary sanctions, and or criminal charges." However, Gayton also pointed out that like much of Canadian society, CSC is experiencing the effect of Canada's opioid crisis and that CSC has implemented a range of prevention, treatment and harm reduction measures to work with inmates in response to this need. Forrestal also reported that Chris Beschultz, Ontario regional president for the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, told the Kingstonists that the union doesn't want illegal drugs coming into our institutions, so we don't condone or want to condone the use of them. However, he said that the overdose prevention site was the lesser of two evils, compared to programs such as the PNEP, or Prison Needle Exchange Program, a program the union will fight every step of the way, said Beschultz, because officers do not want needles in cells. She also reported that Gaten stated penitentiary sites that are selected to host harm reduction services, such as an overdose prevention site, are chosen based on population health needs, including data on overdoses at the site, many of which were opioids. During the 2022 to 2023 fiscal year, there were 23 cases of overdose interrupted or suspected overdose interrupted at Collins Bay. So far this fiscal year, there have been nine incidents at Collins Bay of suspected overdose interrupted and eight incidents of overdose interrupted. Listeners can read this and other stories by local journalism initiative reporter Michelle Dory Forestell at Kingstonist.com. And now with more regional news.
0: Thank you so much, Mia and Katrina. In our next segment, we have a report from Keith Dempsey of the Brockville Recorder and Times for the Local Journalism Initiative about a 35-acre land gift given to the town of Gananoque. Dempsey reported on October 2nd that the town received a tract of managed forest located at the east end of Gananaquai, south of the commercial area and which abuts the St. Lawrence River to the north and has historically been enjoyed as part of the town's trail system. The lands will be formally named in honour of Judith Scott McLean, with a plaque to be erected that will read Judith Scott McLean Memorial Forest. Dempsey reported that Ivan and Marguerite Scott purchased this land as a working farm from the Dempster family in 1950. Their daughter Judy inherited the farm in 1981, and Judy's goal was to preserve a habitat for native plants and animals. In her memory, Judy's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren are donating this property in perpetuity to the town of Gananoque. Our hope is that the residents of Gananoque and its visitors will respect and enjoy the natural beauty of this property as much as Judy did, the McLean family said in a statement. Please respectfully enjoy the trails, animals, plants, and lovely view of the mighty St. Lawrence River from Turtle Rock. The town of Gananoque has promised to acknowledge, maintain, preserve, and respect the current managed forest status of the property and covenants to prohibit any development of the property whatsoever, save and accept for any extension or expansion of any municipal Infrastructure. Listeners can learn more about this and other stories by local journalism initiative reporter Keith Dempsey in the Brockville Recorder and Times. And coming up next on The Corridor, we have reportage from Ted Evans at CJAI Amherst Island Radio for the local journalism initiative.
5: Hi, I'm Ted Evans, local journalism initiative reporter and news director at CJAI Amherst Island Radio, 101.3 FM in Stella, Ontario. Coming up are some of the top news stories from Loyalist Township. You can hear Amherst Island Radio's news program, North Shore News, on 101.3 Amherst Island Radio, or online at cjai.ca. For showtimes throughout the week, check the schedule on our website at cjai.ca.
0: In this first segment, Ted reports on Loyalist Township's enactment of a new tree canopy and natural vegetation bylaw.
5: Council passed a motion at their September 25th meeting to enact a new bylaw that looks to protect and enhance Loyalist Township's tree canopy and natural vegetation. The new bylaw will help put into place a new policy for residents and township staff to adhere to when dealing with trees and other vegetation in the area. Ontario's Municipal Act states that municipalities must adopt and maintain policies such as this one. Under the new policy, private landowners will be encouraged to reforest idle lands. These areas often provide important habitat for species that could be lost through reforestation. Development Services Manager Andrea Furness explained why the township has a tree bylaw in the first place.
1: There are some exemptions in the tree bylaw um, in regards to farming, um, so there there's exemptions here and there. But if but we don't have to grant a tree permit, it has to be like there has to be a reason, and that's why it was that's why the tree permit was a uh, tree bylaw was initially put in place um, because there was some clear cutting occurring in the township, and it was a mechanism to to stop it from happening.
5: Council reviewed a draft of the bylaw in 2019, and staff followed up with public comment consultation. The adoption of the bylaw was then placed on hold while the township completed its official plan policy and consulted on other existing policies. Once updated in accordance with the township's official plan policy, the bylaw was also further revised to update and help streamline both the rural tree planting policy and the replacement of trees in boulevards policy. Staff noted these two policies were outdated and combined them into one policy for ease of reference. More public consultation took place this summer in the final weeks of August. Applicable comments were included in the forming of the final proposed bylaw. This bylaw takes into account that council annually budgets funds for tree planting. Staff noted tree planting will be included in the upcoming 2024 municipal budget process. Director of Economic Growth and Community Development Services Marie Josie Merritt spoke about the steps the township is looking at to encourage a healthy tree canopy.
0: Something else that we're looking at out of the climate action plan is at some point having maybe like um, a partnership with conservation authorities for tree planting as well. So these are kind of initiatives that the township can take to encourage um, a healthy tree canopy as well.
5: All members of the public who submitted comments and questions were provided with a copy of staff's report. The bylaw and associated policies will be posted on the township's website and shared to their social media accounts. For CJAI and the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Ted Evans.
0: And coming up next, Ted reports that Loyalist Township is seeking public input on master plans and its budget.
5: Loyalist Township is seeking public input on three major plans. The new recreation master plan, the infrastructure master plan, and the 2024 budget are all points of interest at five town hall meetings throughout the township this week and next. Mayor Jim Hagedorn spoke about the process of gathering public input.
0: We want to be out in the communities and not necessarily just make everybody come into our meetings, we want to go out to the communities and be able to have casual conversations and glean information and uh, that's always still as far
5: as I can see. The new recreation master plan will be coming into effect later this fall and carrying on into 2024. Council noted the public's evident interest in recreation facilities and programming in the area. The document covers all recreation within the township and also helps regulate parks, amenities, and park services. Deputy Mayor Nathan Townend spoke about the recreation master plan.
6: I think um, there's two key takeaways to take uh, take away from this. One is that council and staff are fully aware of how important recreational infrastructure is to the people of Loyalist Township. And that's across the township. Uh, and that good recreational facilities are an absolute priority for our residents' tax dollars. Uh, That message is received loud and clear. We see it everywhere we go in every process in which we engage uh, the public, and that message is received. So that's one takeaway. The second is that council and staff are determined to, frankly, get it right uh, with respect to developing a long-term vision for building and improving that recreational infrastructure. Um, Because, of course, we do need to take into account the diverse wants and needs uh, of our communities throughout the township and the specifics there, but also the financial costs um, associated.
5: The Infrastructure Master Plan is currently in its final stages before being approved by Council. This is another document Council encouraged the public to voice their opinions about, either at the meetings or online. The township's 2024 budget process is currently underway. It will be coming to council later this year for review and approval. Deputy Mayor Nathan Townend spoke about why public input will be key for this process.
6: Really the budget process helps us as citizens really develop uh, a fulsome appreciation for the number and extent of costs associated with operating the municipality, which are a lot. Um, Loyalist is kind of unique in a number of ways with respect to what it manages within the corporation and this is really especially true when you consider our relatively small,
5: albeit growing, uh, population and our diverse geographic spread in our various communities staff will be reviewing the public's input in november and using the feedback to update the objectives and initiatives in the 2024 budget beyond that there will be another opportunity for public input in december mayor jim hagedorn notes what council is looking to find out from public input
0: we have five of these uh, public meetings uh, throughout the township
6: and we also have a public survey Um, And part of it is, one of the big things we want to look at is uh, what you
0: believe the township should start doing, maybe should stop doing or continue
5: doing. For CJAI and the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Ted Evans.
0: And thank you to Ted Evans and now over to Craig Foster at CJPE County FM in Picton, Ontario for the Local Journalism Initiative. Hi, I'm Craig Foster, local journalism initiative reporter and news director at CJPE 99.3 County FM in beautiful Prince Edward County. Coming are some of the top stories from PEC. You can hear County FM news five days a week, six times a day on 99.3 County FM, Voice of the County, or stream us at 99.3countyfm.ca. And in this segment, Alexander Wright reports that the Prince Edward County Council amended short-term accommodations rules to make them
7: more family-friendly. On Tuesday, a small but significant change to the short-term accommodation STA bylaw was approved, which restores the allowance of one under 10-year-old child per licensed guest room that permits two guests. South Marysburg Councillor John Hirsch explained the rationale for the amendment and the desire to fix an unintended consequence of the new STA bylaw passed last year.
8: Council will recall there was communication from the the, um, the Licensed Accommodators Association uh, of the county, uh, a communication from their president, uh, Develle Morrison, uh, who pointed out that when we made changes to the bylaw, at least its operation in 2022, it seemed we got rid of the intent that had been originally enacted in 2018 to allow um, children not to count in the per-bedroom uh, limit. So this simply restores things to uh, the, way, um, the way they were. And uh, I think it, it's useful that we do this as quickly as we can. The season isn't over yet. According to county
7: staff, children 10 and over will still count as regular guests due to the fire code.
0: And in this segment, Alexander Wright reports that the Prince Edward County Council approved a spot road repair program and street sweeper replacement.
7: On Tuesday, Prince Edward County Council authorized over $600,000 worth of road repairs along with the purchase of a $500,000 replacement street sweeper. The county's Road Surface Spot Repair Program budget was doubled to the tune of $622,000 during the 2023 operating budget process, and it will most likely be utilized as the county only received one bid submission for a similar amount during tender, Kylie Paving Limited. County staff did not recommend a retender, even though there was a lack of competition due to the limited number of large-scale paving contract willing to work on smaller-scale work, such as spot repair. Council also awarded FST Canada Inc., over $460,000 for the provision of a replacement street sweeper after the original unit was involved in a collision in the spring of last year. Proceeds from its insurance policy covered about half the cost. For the Local Journalism Initiative, this is Alex Wright.
0: And thank you to Craig Foster of CJPE County FM in Picton for the local journalism initiative. And now over to Jeff Gard of CFWN in Coburg on the Walk a Mile campaign to support Cornerstone Family Violence Prevention October 14th in Coburg.
8: The 16th annual Walk a Mile fundraising event supporting Cornerstone Family Violence Prevention Center is set for Saturday, October the 14th. Representatives from lead sponsors Canadian Tire Coburg and Post Consumer Brands presented checks of $5,000 each during a launch event Wednesday morning. Executive Director Nancy Johnston said Cornerstone provided service to more than 1,800 women, children and youth last year and Walk a Mile is one of their signature events to make that possible.
0: Every year the event grows momentum. We have more and more community members coming out to take a stand against family violence and gender-based violence. Well, we're really excited once again this year and hope that the community comes out to support us. Our programs are in ever-increasing need and we rely on fundraising in order to continue to to provide uh, these critical services in Northumberland County.
8: During the past 15 years, Walk a Mile has raised just under $500,000, Johnston said.
0: It shows, you know, the, the absolute great generosity that we have in our community and the support that Cornerstone continue to rely on our community and they understand what we do and the importance of what we do. So we're forever grateful for the ongoing support that we have for our community and we couldn't do it without them.
8: Scott McCubri of McCubri Funeral Home has been a participant every year since the event's inception and says it's just a small way he can help support those in need at Cornerstone.
6: I did not grow up in a hostile environment in my house. I was blessed with the fact that, that there was no uh, domestic violence or any threat of it. And I can't imagine not being able to come home and feel that your house is a safe place. So I feel passionate that, you know, helping people that don't feel safe in their own home They need our support.
8: What started as a spectacle of men walking down King Street in high heels, the Walk-A-Mile event has evolved to include families and pets, and participants can walk in the footwear of their preference. Participants will depart from in front of the Coburg Police Station on King Street and walk through the downtown. The registration fee is $20 for adults and $10 for participants under 18, and walkers are encouraged to collect additional pledges to support Cornerstone. You can register at cornerstonenorthumberland.ca slash walkamile. Reporting for Northumberland 89.7 FM, I'm Jeff Gard.
0: Thanks so much, Jeff. And now it's time for the CFRC weather report from Environment Canada. Tonight we'll have clear skies early this evening, then partly cloudy with a 40% chance of showers. Winds south at 30 kilometers an hour gusting to 50, becoming light near midnight, a low of 17 and a low of 17. On Friday, October 6th, we'll expect showers with a local amount of 10 to 15 millimeters with winds south at 40 kilometers an hour gusting to 60. Early in the afternoon, a high of 19. On Friday night, showers with a low of 12. Saturday, we'll have showers again with a high of 15. Saturday night, cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a low of 8. And on Sunday, cloudy with a 40% chance of showers and a high of 12. And cloudy that night with a 40% chance of showers and a low of 6. And the outlook for Thanksgiving Monday is cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 12. And cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a low of 6 that evening.
3: And now it's time for the CFRC Community Concert and Events Calendar. Have an event you'd like to be covered on our website and news programming? Contact us via cfrc.ca today. On October 6th, there's weekly karaoke at Daft Brewing from 9pm to midnight. Come with your friends and sing along to your favorite tunes. Also on October 6th is the Gathering of Remembrance event. These evenings are geared to Muslim students but open to anybody. This is an opportunity to engage in conversations around spirituality and love as taught by the Prophet Muhammad. Everyone is welcome and this is located at Mitchell Hall from 6 to 8 p.m. On October 7th is the Beers for Queers social event for members of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies. Come on out for an evening of friends and fun located at the Monty's Room of the Trigonog Irish Pub from 9 to 12 p.m. On October 8th, we are celebrating Muslim Women in Arts and Sciences in regards to Islamic History Month in Canada. There is a CIRA conference at the Islamic Centre of Kingston from 2 to 5 p.m. October 9th is Thanksgiving Day. There are no classes for Queen students and faculty. This was Kat bringing you the community events calendar for October 2nd through to October 9th. Have a lovely week.
4: Now it's time for your upcoming concerts. Catch Eras, the monthly dance party and drag show at Something in the Water Brewery this Friday, October 6th. The show will take place at 8 p.m. and is free until 9 p.m., then $5 at the door. Also hosted by drag queen from Kingston, Rowena Way. Last on October 6th, you can also catch Brian Flynn and Andrew Van Horn at the Tiernanog playing traditional and contemporary Celtic, Irish, and Scottish covers. They'll be there from 9pm until midnight, and it's free to see the show. And Saturday, October 7th, catch Smokin' Roosters at the club RCHA, featuring Randy Fowler and Jamie Cameron, playing everything from Patsy Cline to The Clash. They'll be there from 8 p.m. until 11 p.m., and it's $5 at the door or free for club members. Over on Wolf Island, Saturday, October 7th, catch Sweet Pete and the Heat, a collective of local musicians who love dirty and funky blues music, at Hotel Wolf Island from 7 until 10 p.m. Tickets are to be announced in price and will be available online soon. Back on the mainland, Saturday, October 7th, catch The Dwindles, an indie pop band from St. Catharines, Ontario, playing The Mansion at 9 p.m. with Doors at 8 Also, October 7th, catch the Last Call Band playing a great night of live music at the Royal Canadian Legion Branch 560 from 8pm until midnight. Doors are at 7pm and tickets cost $10. Now on to some concerts on Sunday, October 8th. At Hotel Wolf Island, Megan Aversa, Danny Sheenan, and Nat Resi are playing a Sunday matinee show you don't want to miss from 3 p.m. until 7 p.m. The show is $15, or pay what you can, over on Wolf Island. At the mansion that same night, October 8th, Surf Hat is playing some indie surf rock from the West Coast at the mansion. The show is from 8 p.m. until 1 in the morning, and tickets cost $22, available online now. And finally, next Monday, October 9th, Cowboys in the Campfire and Pastoral Papillion play the mansion for $25 from 9 p.m. until 12 a.m. They're going to be playing some great American music and some soul. And those are your concerts for the upcoming week. To find more information and information about campus events, check out cfrc.ca.
0: And thanks, Mia and Katrina. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into The Corridor right here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Have news you'd like to share? Reach out to us at cfrc.ca or contact our local journalism initiative reporter, Chris Laurie, at news at cfrc.ca. Have a great day.